that you're glad you're here. We're glad that you're here. And if this is your first time here, thank you for coming. Thank you for having the courage to come to a church that's new to you. And we were actually about seven and a half years old. And our desire is to make much of Jesus Christ by connecting people to Jesus for life change. And we'd love to know how you heard about Southbridge. So if you take time to fill out the connection card, which you can find in your worship folder, we'd be glad to hear from you. You can take that filled out card um, to the first time guest kiosk where we have a gift waiting for you. And uh, there's always things happening with Southbridge, so take time each week to read your bulletin or go to the website and find out what's going on. This week on Thursday night, Celebrate Recovery, we'll be uh, having a story, a testimony of of amazing life change. Carrie Taylor will be sharing her story, so you don't want to miss that. And also tomorrow night, I ask that you pray uh, for me as I train. um, 22 people are coming for a new leader training event tomorrow night in my home, so it's going to be great. And it's going to be tight, and it's going to be wonderful, and we're hoping to launch new groups on September 21st. And if you'd like more information about groups, I'll be in the, under the blue tent in the, just outside the lobby after each service, ready to give information. So if you'd like to talk about that, I'd love to share it with you. This morning, we're continuing our series, Teach Us to Pray. Um, recently, we concluded a study of the book of Acts, which we called Movement. That was a 19-month journey. And so for the rest of the summer, we're just going through a short part of Scripture when Jesus teaches his disciples what prayer is all about. And so before we go to the Lord's word, let's just present ourselves before him and ask him to teach us. Will you pray with me? Lord, for this morning, thank you. Thank you for each person that's here. And we long to have an encounter with you. We long to know that your spirit is uh, alive and working and not just know that by academics, but to experience that. So Lord, we just yield our church to you. uh, Lord, I just pray for each person This morning, Lord, that you would guide and teach and instruct. And uh, Lord, with what you and I have been working on this week, God, I just, uh, I'm ready and willing to say whatever you want me to say. So please help me. And uh, Lord, help us as a church uh, to grow in understanding more of who you are, your character, and that we'd be changed as a result of having an encounter with you. So we come to your word expectantly. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. If you have a copy of the scriptures, you can turn to Matthew chapter 6, verse 5 for our context. As we're learning about what it means to pray, and our desire for this series is that you would have a desire, your appetite for prayer would grow, and that indeed you would then pray, that you would pray more often. And we were inspired by such things recently because we did a survey on a Sunday morning during both services where people reported that they are not really happy with where they're at in their spiritual disciplines, chiefly prayer. And so we were inspired and felt prompted to move forward with this series. And so we're looking at what Jesus Christ has to say about prayer. So read with me, if you will. This is Matthew chapter 6, and I'll start in verse 5, just because every message comes within a context, and so so does this. So look at verse 5. This is Jesus speaking. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. Not about the location, but more about the motive, so that they would be seen. Somehow they thought that people seeing them pray would make them feel better about them. I'm not sure. I tell you the truth, they have their reward in full, verse 6. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. We were reminded the first week of this series, two weeks ago, that it's not necessarily about the location, as some were to believe it, because we know that Jesus prayed in public, and so did some of his followers. So it's, again, about the motive, about having a connection with the Father, not about trying to impress other people. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. We were reminded by Pastor Scott two weeks ago, wonderfully, that people used to pray and used to 
try to stack all the God's names together in a row and so that they somehow conjure the Lord's presence, conjure his, waking him up from his slumber. And Jesus is saying, you don't have to do that. For they think they will be heard for their many words. Verse 8, do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask. And we were reminded, so then why do we need to pray? If God already knows what we need, why should we pray? And that's so that we can be in communion with him. Prayer is not so much about changing him or making him aware of our lives because he is aware, but us becoming aware, practicing his presence. Verse 9, this then is how you should pray. In the first week, we looked at this first two lines here. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We were reminded that this God that we're praying to, who is the Lord, one Lord, one God, is our heavenly Father. We're reminded that that means he's accessible, that he's loving and kind. And if you had a good father, he's better than that. If you had a terrible father, he's the best father. And you can take comfort in that. So he is accessible. Hallowed be your name. But he is also set apart. We were reminded that Jesus isn't our homeboy and the father isn't Santa. He is completely holy and righteous. And he allows us to come before him in his throne room. He raises a scepter to us and says, I want to talk to you. Do you want to talk to me? A loving Father who is completely separate and through our lives made holy to an unbelieving world. Hallowed be your name. Last week we looked at your kingdom come, your will be done this week on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This is not a manuscript for a prayer, but these are principles of prayer. So the Lord isn't more inclined to us. His ear doesn't bend to us when we use these magical words. But Jesus is teaching us about prayer, the content of a prayer, principles of prayer. And last week we looked at the phrase, your kingdom come. And we know that his kingdom is wherever his reign is. And so we asked, Lord, please start in us individually. And we learned about his kingdom arriving through salvation and submission and then through sanctification as we become more and more like kingdom inhabitants, as we become more and more representing the king and looking like the king. And lastly, the, the, the kingdom arrives through Jesus' second coming, and it's going to happen. This morning, we're going to focus on this phrase, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Think back to your prayer life. Think about what prayer has been like for you and it's been hard not to be confronted over and over again as we go through this series. And now that we're in the third week, I've been thinking a lot about my prayer life. And I came to know Christ when I was seven and what my prayer life has been like even through now as I'm 37. And I can't help but think that sometimes my prayer life is often like my family going to a restaurant where we're engaging a waiter or a waitress, our server, and calling upon the server over and over again. Uh, can we have more barbecue sauce, please? Can we have more napkins? Uh, this is chocolate milk. It's supposed to be regular milk, but they want chocolate milk, but we'd rather have them have regular milk. Can you do that? Think about how you engage the Lord. Would you do this? Could you do this? Could you change this? Oh, this isn't right. Uh, this has mayo on it, and that's my kryptonite. Please take it back. God, you gave me this. No, I don't want this. Please take it back. We're engaging. We're asking to serve because we have a view that God ought to serve us, and we think that we have a pretty good plan. Can we have more napkins, please? We probably asked that maybe 10 times. <laughs> more napkins. More napkins. More napkins. Lord, I need more money. Lord, I need more of your comfort. I need this. I want this. But the scriptures tell us that the Lord knows what we need. We ought to ask him because it allows us to be informed of his character and his presence in our life. But do you think that's God's greatest vision when we come to prayer, that we would treat him as our waiter or waitress? More ranch, please. Probably not, huh? Do you think God's command for prayer is something more than him 
waiting upon us so that we can tell him what we think we'd like more of or less of or what we'd like changed? Probably more, yeah. So when we pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, it means whatever you desire to happen, let it happen immediately. That word, that Greek word for done means now, happen. Please allow it to arrive now, kind of like your kingdom come. The, the, the emotion there and the language there is we want it now. We want it rapidly. And as soon as you'd like to have your will to be done, that's when we want it. God, you do what you want. Start in my life. And so just like last week when we looked at what does it mean that the kingdom would arrive and how that would start within us and we looked at aspects of the kingdom, we looked at Jesus first, what Jesus had to say about the kingdom. We didn't have time to read all the things that Jesus said and taught about the kingdom. And it's the same when we talk about what Jesus said and did and how he lived according to God's will. But there's some scriptures, so I prayerfully suggest you get into God's word and look for yourself about what God's word has to say about God's will. Look for yourself and own your relationship between you and the Lord to investigate such deep theological truths. But here's some scripture to wash over you, okay? So Jesus, what he has to say and how he engaged God's will. John chapter 4, verse 34, we see what Jesus has to say when there was a discussion about food and the disciples are always talking about food, worried about food often. And you could write a book just about how the disciples talked about food and what Jesus had to say about it. But then Jesus twists their impression a bit about food and he says that my food, meaning Jesus speaking here, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. I wonder how tasty that is. Jesus is saying, I get nourishment from being about my father's business. He continues on John chapter 5, verse 30. In fact, all our passages just in this section will be from the book of John. John chapter 5, verse 30. I'll read it. John chapter 5, verse 30. By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just. For I seek, to please, I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. Jesus is saying, I only do what the Father tells me to do. I only say what the Father tells me to say. And this is not only as an example for us, but he actually did it. How much more ought we do it? In John chapter 6, verse 38, Jesus speaks more about the Father's will. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Same book, just a chapter later. He's constantly assuring his disciples that this life that he's living isn't about what his plan is, but he's submitting to his Father's plan, even though he himself is God, not a separate God, one with the Father, doing what the Father desires. And then again in John chapter 7, verse 17. If anyone chooses to do God's will, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Jesus is saying, what I say comes from the Father. My teaching is the Father's teaching. If anyone wants to do God's will, then he'll find out that what Jesus is saying about it is true. Another passage in the book of John, John chapter 8, verse 29. For the one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. Can you imagine that? Think about the last month of your life. Would you be able to say, I always do what pleases the Father? The answer is no. Because God's still sanctifying us for those that are in Christ at his pace. But this is Jesus. Most notably, we see Jesus in great agony speaking to his Father, our Heavenly Father, in Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 39. And this prayer between Jesus and his Father is happening in the garden. In fact, we know that Jesus often went alone to pray, and this is the night in which he'd be betrayed. 
and he's spending time in the garden. This garden is real. I've been to this place. It's a real place. He asked his friends to pray with him, but they were too sleepy. So he went a distance from them and prayed to his father. And part of his prayer was he prayed for his disciples. Then he prayed for all who would believe the message of those disciples. Then he prayed for the world that they might believe that the father sent him through how those that would believe lived. And then we see this, this plea between Christ and his heavenly father concerning God's will. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground. This is Jesus. My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. And what is the cup? God's redemptive plan that he would go to the cross to take on our punishment upon himself. He'd pay the price for our sins as an atoning sacrifice for us so that whoever would believe in that work might have a relationship with the Lord that lasts forever. If it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Keep moving forward. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour? Yes, Peter. And next verse. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Then he went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. Over and over again, Jesus is praying. He's speaking with his father and desires to do the will of the Lord. He's made of flesh, yet he's perfect in his deity, and yet he yields himself. So when Jesus says, not as I will it, but your will be done, he is passionately revealing how his humanity he voluntarily surrendered his will to the will of the Father in all things. There's no conflict then between his divine nature and his desires. Jesus did the will of the Father for God's glory and for the sake of a sin-filled people, you and me. Christ demonstrates what it looks like to live out your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I think to myself, yeah, but that's Jesus. Do you ever say that back? Yeah, but that's Jesus. It doesn't really count because he's God. So we minimize Christ's humanity. And so we think that we are set free. So we might ask, well, then if God is God, doesn't his will always happen? Have you wondered such things? Jesus is saying, your kingdom come, your will be done. But we're talking to the one who's powerful enough, capable enough, and has a plan that he can make his will happen. So it is a Appropriate question as we're studying God's word as good Bible students to ask the question, if God is God, doesn't his will always happen? If, he's, if he is God, then why do we have to pray, your will be done? And this might not be a satisfying answer, but here we go. It's hard to understand, but we don't always have to let our inability to grasp the Lord's unique character and his expressed commands concerning prayer stop us from obedience. None of this is paradoxical to him. And yet, it must be to us because we are not in the mind of the Lord. And yet, you might meet some Christians who act like there's no mystery with God anymore. They're, they're, they're wrong. Okay. But back to the question. Isn't God's will always happening? So if you're a note taker, you can write this down. Really unsatisfying, I, I'd imagine. The answer is this. Yes and no. Hmm. So let's look at aspects of God's will to justify such an answer. So some aspects of God's will. Number one, God's redemptive plan. In Isaiah chapter 14, the Lord Almighty says this, Surely I have planned, so it will be. And as I have purposed, so it will happen. That sounds like a king, doesn't it? 
This is the plan determined for the whole world. This is This means his hand is stretched over all the nations and he is going to work his plan for history and for the future. In Jeremiah chapter 51 verse 29, the scriptures say that every purpose of the Lord will be performed. He is in control. There is a belief that God set things in motion then stepped back and because things bad happen, happen on earth that are bad, he wishes he could be involved but he's not. That's open theism. That's a lie. The scriptures are clear that God is involved in control. He has a plan for the redemptive history of the world. We see God's redemptive plan as well in the New Testament. So Old and New Testament this morning. In Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 3. And this is one of my favorite passages of scripture. The Lord has used it to, to shape my life and change my life. Paul is writing to a brand new church. that needs to be reminded of who they are in Christ. He writes, Praise to the God of the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. To be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. That's kingdom talk. But do you see the words he chose us, predestined? We see words in scripture like elected, that there's this sovereign plan. He, his plans and purposes for the redemption of people cannot be thwarted or stopped. It is an unstoppable force that God is using his church now, those that are spirit-filled people that are adopted into the name of Jesus Christ, a part of God's family, as they share the gospel, as they share how Jesus changed their life, people are going to respond according to God's good will, the scriptures say, and pleasure. And he is working his plan, and he is pleased to work this plan. This part of his will, his redemptive plan, cannot be stopped. It is going to happen. So can God's will be stopped in this aspect no. No. There's a second aspect here, and it's God's desire and passions. God's desire and passions. And we can look at a couple scriptures here in the New Testament that showcase if this can be stopped or thwarted or rejected or impeded upon. In Luke chapter 13, verse 34, Jesus is speaking. We see him saying this prophetic language here. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how I have often longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you are not willing. This is related to God's passion and desire. Oh, how I've longed to gather you. Some people think this is more a motherly statement, but fathers, mothers, we have this idea of desire for our children to be what God desires for them to be. And sometimes there's this rebellion that's just pushing away. And that's what Jesus is saying about God's own people. Oh, how I've longed to gather you. I want you to be won over by my love and by the message that was sent to you. But you keep saying no to the message. And you keep saying no to me. And I am desperate for you. How can God be desperate for them if he already knows how they'll respond? A great conundrum. 
Jesus has a passion. The Father has a passion for people, a desire for people. We see it then even beyond then his own people, beyond Israel. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, we read this. And this is a scripture to hide in your heart when you share the gospel with people. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish but everyone to come to repentance. A lot of people are cutting out repentance in the gospel message. There has to be a turning. You can't have two masters. You can't have two kings. There's a turning from one king, one authority, you, to the king. This is passion and desire language. And I really, used, I struggle with this one because I used to ask for my, myself, well, if God already knows what his redemptive plan is, then why would he not desire that any should perish, then all would be saved. But the truth is that not all will be saved. That's universalism, that because God loves everyone, therefore everyone will be saved. But that's not true. People say, no, they don't want him as a father. And I struggle somehow in my theological grid to put it all into a nice, neat box. But we see here that God's desires and passions come upon stone hearts. So as far as God's will happening in his redemptive plan, yes, it's going to happen. It's always going to happen. Nothing can stop that. In fact, some people might teach, well, there is a force. God is a force, but there's an equal and opposite force, and that's Satan and his followers. They're not equal and opposite. They're created beings, and God will destroy them at the appointed time. That's a false teaching. But when it comes to his desires and passions and God's will happening in the lives of everyone in all circumstances, well, then we know that there's opposition to his expressed desire and passion for people in the sense that not everyone is living as kingdom inhabitants. So yes, and then no. A third aspect to look at. A third aspect of God's will to consider as we pray, your will be done. Remember, that's what we're talking about this morning. When we talk to the Lord, we're asking him to allow his will to happen, to happen immediately. And the third aspect is God's decrees and commands. We look at God's redemptive plan. We look at God's desires and passions. And then we consider God's decrees and commands. We could ask, how many commands are there in God's word? Several sources say there are 613 commands in the Old Testament laws given to God's people. And then 1,050 commands in the New Testament. Some say because of repetition, you can narrow those down to about 684. So both Old Testament and New Testament commands cover every phase of life, of relationship with the Lord and with other people. So one might say, well, you know what? Those Old Testament commands, those are fulfilled in Christ. When Jesus died on the cross, we don't have to follow those anymore. Plus, I just, you know, I just really want to follow Jesus. You know, I'm not really sure about the Bible, so I just want to follow what Jesus has to say. Well, that's... I understand that notion. I think it's faulty. But Jesus gives at least 50 commands. Can we look at some of them? Repent, follow me, rejoice, let your light shine, honor God's law, be reconciled, do not commit adultery, which Jesus defines as looking. Keep your word, go the second mile, love your enemies, be perfect, practice secret disciplines, lay up treasures, seek God's kingdom, judge not, do not cast pearls, ask, seek, knock, do unto others, Choose the narrow way. Beware of false prophets. Pray for laborers. Be wise as serpents. Fear God, not man. Hear God's voice. Take my yoke. Beware of leaven. Deny yourself. Despise not the little ones. Go to offenders. Beware of covetousness. Forgive others. Honor marriage. Be a servant. Be a house of prayer. Ask in faith. Bring in the poor. Render to Caesar what is his. Love the Lord. Love your neighbor. Await my return. Remember Christ's sacrifice and communion. Be born again, keep my commandments, watch and pray, feed my sheep, baptize my disciples, receive God's power, give, make disciples. 
How's it going? So we know an aspect of God's will is that he has expressed his will through his commands and decrees. And you say, well, the Old Testament, that's not for me. And the New Testament, I'm not sure because that was just so old. It couldn't possibly know what today would be like. Our culture's changed and God didn't, didn't have those writers have what life would be like in 2014. So I just follow Jesus. Well, considering Jesus, the 50 I read, how's that going? Is his will always happening? God's revealed will is violated every time one of his commands or decrees is disobeyed. So then it's a no. Sometimes his will is not happening. So when God's kingdom really invades one's life, like we spoke of last week, that person seeks to yield to kingdom commands, what the king desires. So it doesn't make any, say, any sense to say that Jesus is my king and at the same time disregard his decrees. So does his redemptive plan, is that happening? Yes, according to the scriptures. Are his desires and passions thwarted or said no to? Yes, according to the scriptures. Are his decrees and commands always being abided in and, and, and said yes to? No. No. When we come to this commands, a lot of times when we think about God's will and his commands, we want to hear a message about um, who should I marry? What college should I go to? What is his will about this job? This message is not that one. That's another aspect. What is God's specific desire for me in this circumstance? Say yes to this, no to this, and we're just appealing. That's called inquiring of the Lord, asking him to speak into the everydayness of our life. But if we start with the first three, we get much more advantage in looking at that last idea about God's specific desire, his will concerning the circumstance I'm asking about. But this came to my mind too. The fact that God's commands can be violated is one reason why there are bad things that happen. And that's the second part of what people think about when they think about God's will is really, why do bad things happen? Was that God's will? Or is God not powerful enough so we start doubting his character and his ability? One reason why bad things happen is because people disregard God's decrees and commands. That is why heaven is not on earth. Earth doesn't look like heaven yet because people do bad things against others and God doesn't desire, he doesn't command people to sin against him or other people. He commands against that. So we pray for his will to be done on earth. His redemptive plan cannot be stopped, but his expressed will in the form of his commands come upon stubborn, calloused, and stone hearts all the time. His desire would be for us to live by faith, a faith that leads to obedience. And Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 21, whoever has my commands and keeps them, he's the one that loves me. There's a lot of people who think that they're interested in Jesus and they think Jesus is wonderful because Jesus loves everybody, but not everyone who says they love him really love him because Jesus defines love toward him as obedience. And what would we obey? His commands. So what ought we do as believers, those that have been adopted into Christ, what ought our response be to these commands, to his will on earth? And then we come to a, a, a classic passage in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. This is our response unto God's redemptive plan, his passionate desires, and his commands. For the believer, we say, therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. If you live, you're living for him. When you die, you, just, you die for him. To offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. More than a song. Next verse. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 
We want to connect people to Jesus for life change. Then you will be able to test and approve. Here's another statement about God's will. Then what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Give your life and surrender to the king that his kingdom would make resonance in your heart and your life. As Jesus said, the kingdom is within you. And as you're doing that and you're living for him instead of living according to the pattern of the world, you'll be able to test and see and know what God's perfect and pleasing will is for your life. There's not confusion about such things. So when we pray for God's will to be done on earth, we do so because it's not being done on earth in every way at all times. Starting with ourselves, starting with me. So prayer is not to change God, but prayer is to change us. God's will being done on earth through you is actually best for you and everyone else around you. But are you, are you resisting, loved one? So if we ask, isn't God's will always be done? What's the answer to that, loved ones? Yes, and according to the scriptures. I mean, you might have your own ideas, but I'm going to go with this. Okay? I try to go with this. I get in the way. Yes and no. Yes, and that his redemptive plan is always moving forward according to his sovereignty, but no in the sense that people reject his expressed desires, his passion, and his commands and decrees. Therefore, we pray, your will be done. Our Father, who, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, starting in me, and your will be done, starting in me. but we must pray these things with the right attitude. So take a note here. You can be careful of the attitude when we pray. It's not just simply using a manuscript between us and the Lord and just saying our lines and hope he does his part. But we need to be careful when we pray this principle, your will be done, just as we need to be careful when we pray your kingdom come because there is a motive and an attitude appropriate to match these statements. Just as Jesus alluded to in the beginning of our text, starting in verse five, there's a motive and an attitude and an action that's appropriate for such prayer. So I just want you to be careful of a few things, to be careful of your attitude. And I want you to pray with the right attitude. So number one, pray for God's will without resentment. Here's an example. Your will be done, but you better not. So do you mean his will be done or no? That's like saying, I love you unconditionally as long as you don't. That's a condition, right? Your will be done, but you better not do this. Or you better not withhold this. Or you better. I want your will, but I don't want it to cost me anything. I want your will, but I want it to be comfortable because I really like air conditioning. I want your will to be done, but I don't want it to be painful. How could sickness ever be used in my life to evangelize? I want your will to be done, but I want it to go according to the plan that I have. And what happens with that kind of condition is resentment wells up in us. And that means we're not honest in our prayer when we say, your will be done. Are you following me? I... Uh, have a confession to make when it comes to church community and church people hanging out. And it's this, I am against tackle football with Christians. No pads tackle football every time I've played yields to people not being friends anymore. In fact, it started in student ministry and it always goes like this. The guys, the tough guys usually divide up by which school they're with. And that's really great for unity in the life of a student ministry. 
and they want to play no pads tackle football because everyone thinks they're pretty bad and they're pretty fast. So the game begins, and inevitably, at least five minutes of the game, someone gets tackled in a way they didn't want to get tackled. Oh, geez, not around the neck. Do you want to play tackle football, man? Let's play tackle football, but let's not play tackle football. Lord, your will be done, but don't let it be done in this way. Then that's fake. And God will not be mocked. You can't fake him out. Hmm? I thought it was tackle football. Well, it is, but it's not. I thought you said you wanted my will to be done. I do, but I don't. When we pray for God's will, and then we experience his will, and then we resent him for what transpired, that resentment comes from a misguided belief that God is not doing what is best, or that he is um, absent, or oppressive, or selfish. But consider the prayer again. He is our loving, heavenly father, and he's the king. You're the subject. You're the peasant. He's the king. And he brings you as a peasant and adopts you in his family. You are a princess or prince of the king. And yet we tell the king, your decrees are my desire unless it's something I don't desire. Inappropriate. Another thing to be careful for is to pray. When we pray for your will to be done, an attitude to be mindful is to pray for God's will without apathy. So first, without resentment, and next, without apathy. Your will be done, but you're going to do what you want to do anyway. So it doesn't matter. Has that ever crept into your heart before? This is a prayer that, this is a prayer life with like no pleading, no passion, no intensity, the opposite of Jesus' style, who is himself God, his style of praying. This example relates to um, how some people perceive the idea of praying for those that don't know Christ. At Southbridge, we have a desire that everyone has a one, maybe ten ones that you're praying for, that you want to share the gospel with, just encouraging people that the gospel goes wherever you go. And that's all of our jobs to make disciples, not just Pastor Scott's job. And it's not about you bringing people to him so that he can share the gospel. No, you have the connections with those people and you share from your heart what God's done in your life. But some people in time have grasped onto a theological view that would suggest such things. Well, since God is going to save who he's going to save, it doesn't matter. Why would I pray for those people? Because his redemptive plan can't be stopped. This is an apathetic kind of attitude. Therefore, since that is true, that God's redemptive plan cannot be stopped, I don't have to pray for people that aren't saved or share the gospel with them. That's a really high view of God's sovereignty, and we ought to have one. But it's a low view of God's expressed commands and commission. Furthermore, it disregards Jesus' style because in the garden, he prays for all those who might believe because of disciples and so that the world might believe. Jesus prays for those that don't know the Father. So if Jesus does it, ought we do it? High view of his sovereignty. Some people call it hyper-Calvinism. That's probably not fair. Since God has decided who will be in his family, therefore I don't have to share. That violates God's command and his passion and his example. Don't pray with apathy. Pray with passion and intensity to be persistent in bringing his will before you, his will before himself, saying, I want your will to happen. And you will, you will, you desire that none should perish. I desire that my children would know you. It would be beyond me if my babies didn't know you. I desire, Lord, for the people that come to Selfridge not to sit in seats anymore and just taking God's word, but still don't claim you as their savior. It would be beyond me, more than I could bear that my friends at Selfridge wouldn't know you. 
That's acceptable prayer. You're praying according to his will because he desires that people would come to know him. Hmm? We have an inspirational scripture concerning prayer, and it's the opposite of apathetic prayer. Then in James chapter 5, verse 16, maybe you've hidden the scripture in your heart. Therefore, confess your sins to each other. That's not very popular, by the way. That would make us special as a church if we did that. And pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. I wonder what the prayer of an apathetic man would be. There's power in prayer. God is sovereign, and how our prayer life fits into that, honestly, between you and I, still carries much mystery to me. But prayer is commanded, and prayer with the right attitude. How about a third thing to be careful for concerning our attitudes? Pray for God's will without doubt. Prayer doesn't matter anyway would be the idea here. God's not going to get back to me on this one. I keep talking to him about it, but he doesn't, he doesn't do what I'm telling him to do. I mean, he's not doing what I ask him to do. This is a passive-aggressive attitude. It's like a victim style, a defeatist approach, rather than a joint victory with the Lord. This is accepting that it's all going to turn out God's way, and how God wants it to turn out, but joylessly. Hmm? A couple of scriptures here for our encouragement. James chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. But when he asked, he must believe. Talking, James is writing about the person that's praying. He must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. Good illustration by James. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. That's heavy. To ask and to ask without doubting, but then look at the context of that in verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, this is the idea of asking for this and not doubting about that God wants to provide this. There's context to the, to the scriptures here. If any of you acts, lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. And then the next verse. And so when he does ask for such things, they shouldn't, he shouldn't doubt. But we do doubt, don't we? When praying without doubt, I believe there's a caveat. So some people use that scripture out of context. Ask God for whatever you want, and then don't doubt, because if you really have a good enough faith, he'll give you what you want. He's like the slot machine, and you put in the coins, and you pull the levers, and he just spills out whatever you want. Make sure you don't doubt, though. If you didn't get it, you probably doubted. So make sure you look into yourself that you're not doubting. When praying without doubt, I believe there's a caveat. We are talking about praying for what God's wills. In this context, it was about wisdom. For praying for what God wills without doubt. Not praying for what we will without doubt. Jesus said in John chapter 15, starting in verse 6, If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and, and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. Verse 7, If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. A lot of people like to look just at that part. Pray for God, ask him for things, and don't doubt, and you'll probably get it if you don't doubt. But also, Jesus said this, ask for whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. But verse 8 says this, my father was glorified by this, that you will bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. The context about this is about abiding in Christ, and then being a disciple of Christ for the sake of others around you and for the glory of God. God is generous with his kids, meaning those adopted into his family. But he's not seeking to buy our affection, and does not desire to give us things that are going to take away our worship and adoration of him. 
even though we are tempted to worship anyone or anything that he gives us. So we have to be careful of our attitudes, huh? I think about the things that I asked the Lord for, and I'm starting to think that maybe he's wise enough to say no. It's not a doubt issue for me or a faith issue, but he's pretty smart, and he would know that maybe granting some of my wishes or what we'd say requests would hinder my fellowship with him. Is he smart enough to consider that and to know that? Not only do we have to be careful of our attitudes, but careful of our actions. When we pray rightly we, and live wrongly, that is a problem. So do our prayers seem consistent with his will and the way we live our lives? This would be like the person that is on their way to class and there's a big exam that day and they say, Lord, I know I haven't studied, but help me ace this exam. That's called practicing magic, some theologians say. You're calling upon the Lord to give you something by osmosis and then for you to produce it. Hmm. Have you done that before? No, none of you. No. I just did a lot of confessing on the way to exams. I know I don't deserve anything. Yeah. That's not prayer. That's wishing. The purpose of prayer is not to make God do my will, but to bring my will in line with his. So how about some more realistic examples for us when we consider our actions surrounding the prayer? Praying for God for money, but you don't live generously. Why would he grant that? Praying for a great marriage, but you refuse to serve your spouse. Praying for Christian accountability, but you don't, you aren't honest with people in the past. So why would you be if God presents you a new friend? Praying for a godly spouse, but you won't live in sexual purity now. So you're not being the godly spouse that you desire in someone, someone else. Praying to be a godly dad or mom, but you aren't discipling your kids. Praying for family members to be saved. See, these are things that are in line and in tune with God's expressed desires, compassions, passions, commands, his will. Praying for family members to be saved, but you won't share how Jesus changed your life. It's convicting. Wouldn't it be hypocritical to pray for the Father's name to be seen in us, to be seen as holy through my life, than for me to say that his kingdom come as I offer myself and I submit to his reign, and then I say, and your will be done at the same time living in opposition to those requests? So we have to be careful of our actions when we are praying, your will be done. When we pray for God's will to be done, like it is in heaven, we should ask ourselves as good Bible students, what is it like in heaven? The scriptures tell us. In Psalm chapter 103, verse 20, the scriptures say that God's angels obey his commands. In heaven, there is nothing but obedience to the will of God. God's will is performed gladly and joyfully. When I think about that, I marvel at that. When I think about the little kingdom I have in, in my home, and I ask my five children to do something it's almost never met with gladly and joyfully. It's usually um, me saying, hey, we need to pick up the living room again for the fifth time. And the response back is this. Oh, oh. my legs, they, they, they don't work. Oh, I'm so tired. Well, let's go take a nap. No, I'm not that tired, but I'm too tired to... But children grow up to be adults. That's probably the same line I say in every sermon. That God says something to us and we say, oh, my legs are too weak. What would it take to become the kind of person that accepts God's plan without complaining? Hmm? G.I. Packer said, a theologian, teacher, for perfect communion, 
Not only must God give without limit or restraint, but his servants, angelic and human, must also respond without reserve. Which means that in and through God's will is fully done. Through those things, through those, his character and his action and then our response, his will is done. And that is heaven. And that heaven can be on earth. And someday it will be. Heaven is what it is because all who dwell there does the will of God. God's will accomplished through his creation is the definition of heaven. So heaven is on earth when his redemptive plan is moving forward, his desires are achieved, and when we abide by his expressed wise commands through obedience. So we pray, Father, your will be done. Start with me. Start in me. Would you close your eyes for a moment and think about this prayer again as we wrap up? Think about the order of this prayer again. Our heavenly, accessible, approachable, perfect, loving Father, you are holy and completely set apart from us, and we long to make that known through our lives. You are our King. Bring your kingdom here through salvation and submission, through sanctification, and through your speedy return. Make your will happen here as it does there, and start in my heart. Psalm chapter 40, verse 8. I desire to do your will, my God. Your law is written on my heart. Father, as we look into your word, we recognize that we need you desperately and we need your grace and mercy and we're so grateful that you dispensed it so freely through your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray for each person here, God, that you would enable us to respond rightly, that we'd repent of our sin, that we'd repent of wrong attitudes or wrong actions in light of this prayer, your will be done. Lord, I pray for those that have come this morning, God, that they've been checking out Salvage for a while, they've been considering you, they've been considering your son for quite some time, that they've not yielded their lives to you, Lord. Would today be the day of salvation for those people? Would today be the day that they repent and they confess with their mouth and believe in their heart that Jesus is Lord, King of their life, Lord, and they, would, and they would live now as kingdom inhabitants. Lord, I pray for those that have been adopted into your family for quite some time, and they've just been struggling in their communication with you. God, would you enliven them? Would you embolden them to have a powerful and effective prayer life, that they'd have great communion with you wherever they go? Lord, we long to see your will be done in this, in this church, in our city, in this nation, in this world. We desperately need you and long for you to be seen and evident. Lord, give us a heart for others. Give us a desire to follow your commands and decrees for your glory. Bring heaven on earth. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.